Okay, we have a question from John. Thank you again, John, for supplying us with great fodder. Um, he sent a, a photograph of his paper Wall Street Journal. So even though it's not the electronic version of the Wall Street Journal that is now, I, I find that humorous. Once more unto the breach, dear friends, else close the wall up with our English dead. Good morning again, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, and welcome to another, let me do the, my best radio voice for this one, exciting episode of The Personal Wealth Coach, starring Jake and Jeff McClure. Well, you didn't even do, you're always encouraging me to use a radio voice, like a 1980s DJ well, announcing monster truck rally, and then you just said a monotone, Jeff. Well, sometimes I'm in more of a monotone mood than I am others, but then I can use my radio voice if necessary. Thank you. Uh, were you were you doing both at the same time there, monotone and radio voice? I think I may be doing both at the same time, but doing two things at the same time is a bit of a strain on my brain. Well. Microsoft has been promising for years the ability to multitask. I don't know why we can't do it with our voices. Right. All right. So this is the personal wealth coach. We are a, get this. I know this is a little surprising. We're a radio program. We're also a podcast. It's also not coincidentally the name of an SEC registered investment advisory firm giving fiduciary information uh, to clients at, for since 2007 as a fiduciary in its own right. However, what information or advice? Uh, advice, yeah, right. And uh, but having said that, the firm's name is that. That's not what we're doing on the air. And just because it's registered with the SEC doesn't mean that the SEC gives any kind of thumbs up because they don't do that. I don't think the SEC has thumbs. They have a hammer. <laughs> they have a hammer without a thumb. Well, actually, if there's five of them sitting on the board, they should have 10 thumbs. Possibly, but I don't think it, 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 it doesn't uh, come out in the whole thumbs up thing. They don't approve us in any way. We just register with them. They are our supervisors. If we mess up, they're the ones that hurt us on the firm level. At the On the radio program, we don't give fiduciary advice. Why? Well, because we don't know every one of you. Well, maybe we do. Maybe there's only one listener and we know you, but somehow I don't think that's the case. We still couldn't give the advice because it'd be broadcast to the public and we have privacy act issues yeah so why are we on the air if you we've just now told you that we can't give advice well because we can educate we can teach we've been doing this a long time and we've been studying really hard for a long term on on the subject we're still studying and we still get things wrong but we try not to get the same thing wrong more than four or five times i you thought i was going to say once right <laughs> we're slow learners, but <laughs> once we get it learned, we're pretty good about it. Uh, you want to take the next disclosure? We don't pay for this radio program. Uh, we don't pay Town Square for it. We don't pay KTEM for it. Neither do they pay us. We do advertise on KTEM, oddly enough, for the radio program, but it gets our name out there. 
uh, but we don't pay for the program and they don't pay us for the program. It's sort of a public service issue. Fantastic. Uh, yes. Let's see. The inf- Well, I'm not going to take oh. that one from you. That's your favorite one. You get this one. The information we present on the Personal Wealth Coach radio program has been obtained from sources we deem to be reliable, but we make no warranty or guarantee as to the completeness or accuracy of said information. I, I that That is such a fascinating thing that you love to say. I mean, we obtain information. It's like we're going out and taking it from people. <laughs> we, we take it from things like the Wall Street Journal and the Financial Times and the Economist and places like that. Yep. Uh, the... Uh, Let's see. You said, did you say Financial Times already? Let, let me let me give a list. I, I have a. People often ask me, where do you get your information? What news do you read on a regular basis? And I will tell you the ones that I read every day, and then we'll get to the markets. Um, here we go. And and you, I'm sure you've got a list just the same, only different. This is why we are a good team because some of the stuff that we're reading is the same, and a lot of what we're reading is completely different. Just the same, only different. Like just that. the same, only different. You are all unique, just like everyone else. <laughs> all right. So I read every day the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Economist, and the Texas Tribune. Uh, pretty regularly, I read the Baidu News, which is the Google translated version of one of the leading uh, financial news organizations in China. Um, I read Market Watch. I read the Manhattan Institute. I read the Finance Archives at Wharton. Economics 21, Financial Times, uh, Seeking Alpha. uh, Then I get into industry rags, which are written for financial advisors or investment advisors or brokers and so on. And there's quite a lot of those too. And I have to fit that in to most days. In a week, I've easily covered all of those. And that's not even getting to the bureaucratic releases from the different governmental organizations. How about you? What, what is your daily news read? Pretty much the same thing as yours, except I don't have quite as few. Some of those less well-known sources I don't read very often. Yeah, the, the local ones like Texas Tribune and Baidu News. Well, I do do the Houston Chronicle. I don't do that one, so that's that's a good one. But uh, mainly I do the Wall Street Journal. I do the Wall Street Journal almost religiously, read all the major stories in the Wall Street Journal. That is also my primary go-to. And I use, there's a lot of links in there to places like Dow Jones Newswires. It's one of the reasons I like to read the Wall Street Journal. They also attribute their sources really well. They'll give you a link to the actual bureaucratic news that, that that's coming out, if it's labor stuff or if it's treasury stuff. They have a link to it. You can actually follow it through and check the data. And I read a lot of stuff from Treasury Department, the Labor Department, the Bureau of Economic Analysis, the uh, Bureau of Labor Analysis. Is that it? Yeah. Yeah. I love those bureaus. They're actually, the people who work there are literally bureaucrats. And one of the things I'd love to do is actually go to the Bureau of Economic Analysis and wander around and just see what it looks like. I have this image in my mind of big rooms full of desks with people with green eye shades staring at spreadsheets. And the BEA isn't even a governmental organization. Well, yeah, it is. That is. Never mind. That's not the one I was thinking of. About it's part of the Commerce Department. Yeah, yeah. I was thinking of another bureau, the the one in the kitchen. Sorry, I got them confused. One holds silverware and and the fancy china, and the other one, 
I don't actually have a bureau in my house, by the way. There's other non-governmental organizations, too, like the conference board. We read their releases. Right. All right, so let's get to the market. Now, that that was a quick and easy answer to some, maybe not so quick and easy answer to some questions I get regularly about. Where do you get all your news? But what happened in the market this week? Well, the Standard Poor's 500 declined 2.45%. Anything else you need to know? Ouch. It fell... 0.71% 0.71% last week, which brings it up to a, over a 3% decline. This is interesting. It was on the last trading day of the month, we had this decline. And there's lots of news stories, no shortage of news stories attributing it to this or that or the other. Tech stocks sell off, uh, although a sell off would produce a greater decline than that, I think. Um, definition of sell off is getting a little difficult. But, you know, on the last day of January, it did the same thing. Fell about 3%. Yeah. And I think I think all this analysis of why the market went down on Thursday and Friday, uh, it may be that it'll come up. It will be interesting to see if it comes back up and restores its climb uh, on Monday. Uh, Interesting thing about the stock market, the Dow Jones Industrial Average had hit a new record on Thursday, on Wednesday, I guess it was, and then immediately fell on Thursday. And I think there's something there, too. I, there's, there's, was this, there was a so-called sell-off in the bond market. We'll talk about that in more detail. But a sell-off in the bond market should, in traditional economic theory of markets, should produce a rise in the stock market instead of produced a fall in the stock market. It was just an interesting thing. And I think it, it may just be a coincidence that the last day of the last day of December, the last day of January, and the last day of February, we get a mark sudden market decline. And I think it may have something to do with the last day of the month. It, that is uh, w- when you start to see a pattern that is reliably repeating like this, there generally is something behind it. We don't know what it is yet, but uh, we'll find out. Well, it, it may be people selling to make payroll. It may be, <laughs> it could be a lot of things. I don't know what it is, but we can we can look into it more. The theory presented in the news media, and according to the traders, the, what happens is the Wall Street Journal reporters call the traders on the New York Stock Exchange, NASDAQ, and so on, and say, why do you think the market fell? Because they get input from the people who are buying, the big buyers and sellers. And they'll tell them, and it, they publish it. Theoretically, it was because of fear of inflation. Fear of inflation caused the bond market, which is the other side of the market we need to talk about. The yield on the 10-year Treasury note, which is U.S. Treasury note, which is uh, kind of the guideline, the benchmark for the rest of the bond market, roared up to 1.55% on Thursday. Now, to put that in reference, it was down to 0.7% a few months ago. So 0.7%. And what is it now again? Well, they hit on, on Thursday, it hit 1.55, and it closed out at 1.415. Um, that's up five. That's, that means the interest rates being charged on ten, to, for, for 10-year treasuries are up 5.6% for the week and rose nearly 11% the week before. The yield on the 30-year treasury bond rose to 2.3%. It was stubbornly below 2% and has been for a long time. So what we're seeing is a rise in interest rates. Now, when interest rates rise, the underlying value of the bond, if you're holding, if you're holding a 10-year treasury bond or a 30-year treasury bond or any other bond, if interest rates rise in the market, the sale value of your bond declines. And it depends on the maturity and a whole lot of other things. 
but it declines. And that when it starts to, what happened was it started declining. And then there was a sell-off, meaning a lot of people started selling their treasury bonds. Now, what they were doing with the money is the interesting thing when they were selling their treasury bonds. And the reason they were selling their treasury bonds is because they were, quote, going down, end quote, which is just like the people, which, which shows that treasury traders are just like stock traders. They have a tendency to buy when it's going up and sell when it's going down, which is not really bright, but people do it that way anyway. It, it's, it is a tradition, you know, and a lot of people think that this tradition has fallen by the wayside, but... It, it's one that I think will. I, I think it'll be around for a while. Uh, and that are you are you finished with the markets? Because we have a re, uh, question that dovetails into that section. We'll hold on to that thought. Yeah, and, we got to hold and go on with the market report. We, we report in our newsletter and on the radio on several market indicators. One of them is the Treasury ten-year Treasury note, which is very important. Let's go back up to the stock market for a moment. Uh, the CRSP U.S. Mid-Cap Value Index. Now, why do we report on that? The S&P 500 is obvious. It's the major market indicator for what's going on in the whole stock market. But the the S&P 500 stock index is composed of larger stocks. It's not there are no small stocks in there at all by the definition of by the definition given by Morningstar and other people. So the smallest stocks in the S&P 500 are mid-cap. And the, and the S&P 500, for the last year at least, has been driven almost exclusively by large cap, very large value, large valued, I should say, uh, growth stocks. Things like Microsoft and Google. Is Google still a stock or is it Alphabet now? It is Alphabet. It's Alphabet and Apple and so on. You're, you're showing your, your age. You are, you are more than three years old. And the, and the other end of the spectrum in the S&P 500, at the base of the S&P 500, if you will, are, are mid-cap value stocks. So I try to track those two to see what's going on. Now, the mid-cap value index for the week only fell 1.09%. And while the S&P 500 is up 1.47% for the year, the CRP, CRSP U.S. mid-cap value index is up 7% this year. What that means is the base of the S&P 500, the value stocks are firming up and tending to rise faster than the large cap growth stocks, which is, by the way, a very healthy sign. When you see the reverse going on and it keeps extending and it keeps extending, there's going to be a fall eventually. But I'm, I'm really pleased to see the mid-cap value index uh, holding up as well as it is. Um, the other thing we need to report on, other than the fact that uh, treasuries, the yield is up, which means that the value of the bonds is down is because it's forecasting the higher the return in the treasury market the higher the, the yield rather than not the return the higher the yield in the treasury market the more the treasury people who are buying and selling treasuries are anticipating that there will be a pickup in loan demand and thereby economic activity in the united states sometime in the near future it's kind of like the yield curve which is why we report on the 30-year bond the different what we have is a very steep yield curve that keeps getting steeper again historically the steeper the yield curve the bigger the economic boom coming and it keeps getting steeper and keeps getting steeper which makes some people nervous because they think that's going to mean inflation but i think it's generally means that we're just going to see more economic activity now the other one we want to do as a confirmation is what's happening with oil why do we why do we wonder about that because the supply of oil isn't fixed. The Saudis can turn on the spigots and produce more oil, and the frackers can produce more oil, but it's a slow process. 
what we see mainly in the price of oil is demand. And, and since we report on, when we say the price of oil, we're, we're not reporting on the spot market, we're reporting on near-term futures. Wait a minute. Let, let's tell them the difference. The spot market means you're buying it right now, not that you got spots on you because this is oil we're talking about. Um, if your oil is spotting, cat litter is nice. If you're on the spot market, they don't want any cat litter there. Okay. So the futures market is talking about what it's going to cost in a month or two months or three months or any, there's a different break points of, of times into the future, depending on when you're buying it. What we do is report on what's called the front month, which is the immediate near future futures contracts that are coming due. What are, what are they being priced at? And that way we can see a pretty good average price on the price of oil. Rose 4.44% to 61.66 per barrel. Why is that important to note? Again, it's not rising because there's a shortage of supply. It's rising because there's an increase in demand. So oil is now up to about where it was a year ago, which indicates that the oil market, the future, the people who put a lot of money into the futures contracts and into the oil market in general, are anticipating that the demand for petroleum in the United States and in the world will rise in the near future to the same level it was before the pandemic, which is another positive thing. And we put, you take all these things together, all these indices together, it produces an indication of where the people with the money on the line think the economy is going. Or where they're afraid it's going or where they're hoping it's going. When people are selling out in a, in a panic, they're not doing it because they have a great deal of strategic thought going in their mind. They're just reacting to a fear that they have about something in the future. Usually the bond market's a little bit more stable than that, but not, not this time around. 2019, we saw distinct indicators in these, in these indices. They were suggesting a recession is coming. And of course, a recession came in 2020. Now, did they forecast the coronavirus? No, they didn't forecast the coronavirus. But the coronavirus hit at the same time we were due for a recession, which made it worse. And so you take all these things together, along with the leading economic indicators, which incidentally were up half a percent, uh, and you can generally tell the probabilities of whether we're going to see expansion or contraction in the economy in the near future. And they're all right now, everything is saying expansion in the future. That's right. Um, that's across the board. They're, I mean, they're, they're com everybody's coming to the same conclusion. The vaccine's going out. We're seeing death rates and infection rates dropping across the country and the world as the vaccine's having an impact on the transmission. And it's not like we've suddenly been more isolated from each other or wearing more masks than we did a month ago. There's just a lot of people getting vaccinated. It, it's We're up in the uh, in Texas, we're above uh, the twelve percent mark of the population has been vaccinated. That has an impact on the transmission rate, and that means people are going out and shopping more. Uh, it, I, you and I both have our double vaccination at this point. How do you feel right now about the world compared to where you felt before the vaccinations? Much better. Still frustrated, but much better. Yeah, and that sums it up. There's a, that is the economy right now. Some people are vaccinated, some aren't. We're starting to feel some degree of relief. It's still not without discomfort, and we're moving forward. And people are driving more, people are flying more, people are talking about traveling again. That causes the price of oil to go up. All those things.
because people are using it more. Talk about a consumable. This is, you know, oil is that when people talk about the consumer market, that is, people don't buy oil just to hold oil. It's not like gold. It's not like cash even. What are you doing? I'm just buying some oil in case I might need it in 20 years. That, it goes bad. It's got a, it's got a past due date. Okay. Uh, Would you like to start the discussion on our question or are you still I usually we wrap up at the oil you can start the discussion on the question okay we have a question from John thank you again John for supplying us with great fodder um, he sent a, a photograph of his paper Wall Street Journal so even though it's not the electronic version of the Wall Street Journal that is now I, I find that humorous He's got a question. Can you guys expand on this, please? And it's a picture of a story that I think both of us read pretty thoroughly during the week. It came out on the 25th. The headline for the electronic version was Rare Bond Market Inversion Signals Short-Lived Boost to Inflation, which is not a good way to start most conversations. Just as a side note, you will... Most people will not continue the conversation if you start with that. Uh, people are asking you a lot of questions. I noticed if I, if I were to go to a cocktail party, which I don't, but when I'm in a group of people and I get asked a lot of questions, uh, they want free financial advice or investment advice. Uh, I can say something like that, yeah, and they'll stop in questions. Yeah, they just they stop. So they're saying, "What do you think is going to happen with inflation?" Well, I think a rare bond market inversion is signaling a short term. Uh, it's maybe probably short-term boost to inflation. And what does that mean? And that's what the question is. Because he's asking us, and I have to point this out, John, I hope this was intentional. If not, it was an unintentional awesomeness, at least if you call a pun awesome. The question is about inflation. And he said, can you guys expand on this? I will inflate on it. How is that? Um He's asking, what is a break-even rate? So, this is... This, Very simple answer. What? 2.14? That's the break-even rate. Right now, yes. What What is a break-even rate? Okay. Break-even oh. rate is a near-universal term across finance that has a specific term here. Thankfully, this time, it's the same as the universal. Um, it's got little details about how to get it, but you get a break-even rate in real estate. You get a break-even rate in any investment. Uh, if you have expenses in the investment, how much income do you need to break even after expenses? So this isn't into getting profitable. It's just turning the red to black on the ink side. So if you're in the red, you want to know where your break-even is and you want to get there. And the zeros, I've noticed this, zeros are black, even though they're not positive or negative numbers, but they become black, and so this is a good thing. So the break-even number is amazing. What does it have to do with inflation? What does this have to do with this weird headline about uh, bond market inversion? The difference between tips, this isn't what you leave at a restaurant. This is the Treasury inf uh, Inflation Protected Security. It's a relatively new, at least if you've been in the industry as long as we have, in the, in the economic world as long as we have. It's a relatively new device made by the Treasury that 
the U.S. government guarantees to pay you at least uh, a certain amount. When inflation goes up, they move with inflation. So you, you've got profit somewhere in there. So what is break even if you're holding a treasury note? Not a tip. Why did I bring up tip? It'll just, just remember it's coming back later. The tips are in, in this conversation. If you have a treasury note, bond, bill, those are all different terms for different maturity lengths. If you have any of those, you want to know if you're really actually making any money when inflation is thrown in. Most people that have money in the bank are not making a profit when, insur- when inflation is thrown in right now. I think we're all aware of that. You may possibly, if you lucked out, have a half percent interest on your savings account. Well, what is inflation running right now? Do you have that number? I think you reported on it last week. 1.4. 1.4%. On a year-over-year basis. Okay, so annually, if you're making half a percent in the bank account, and inflation is 1.4%, even though your money's safe, you're moving backward. This isn't us saying take your money out of the bank. In fact, it's the opposite. You need to have reserves in there. The reason why it's called savings is because it's supposed to be safe. It means it's not going to disappear. Any place you go that has a higher yield than an FDIC-backed bank has a lot more risk. That's just part of the deal. You have to recognize that. Okay, so when you're in a treasury note, you're in there for a lot longer. You're kind of locked in unless you want to sell on the secondary market. You're locked into this thing. You've made a loan to the government. Are you, are you breaking even when it comes to inflation? And the way you look at it is you look at the tips. They're saying this is what the U.S. government believes treasury, uh, inflation to be. And if you're making a lot less than that, then you're not at your break-even rate. And that's the big thing is that you're not making a profit, even though you're paying taxes on the interest that you make. You're paying taxes on something that's worth less than it was a year ago. You're not actually making profit, but it's a taxable profit anyway. So I realize that's a bit convoluted. Number one, it's about inflation. Number two, it's about taxes. So if you are not at the break-even rate and you're still paying taxes on your long-term bond portfolio, it's extra painful. And people don't like that for some reason. They don't like to pay taxes on what doesn't really amount to gains. Did you want to add something to that or did I just kick that one to death? Well, the thing is about inflation is people are afraid of it. And they're afraid of it because we had so much of it back in the 1980s and it's probably the old fogies that are afraid of it. Uh, The Fed has warned... Matter of fact, Fed Chairman Powell warned in a news conference this week that uh, we're going to have a short burst of inflation, but it's only temporary. And we can talk about what's causing it right now. There's a there's a really serious cause to it, and that's the constraints in the in the uh, supply chain in the logistics system. Uh, people are ordering a whole lot of things that are not in infinite supply, while they're not getting other things. For instance, you're not going out to eat, so the price of a meal served in a restaurant is certainly not part of inflation right now because people are not buying them. The, uh, what we're, what's happening is the cost of anything that has to be shipped or warehoused is going up because it's a shortage of people doing it. The other thing that's going up in a big hurry is the price of housing, and we can talk, we'll talk about that in some detail. But it's a short burst of inflation caused by temporary logistics issues and supply issues. Once the pandemic is over, that'll be when we'll see whether we really have any inflation. And there's the fear 
and I think it's an unfounded fear, is that all that money that's being stored up by people uh, as their personal household income has gone up, for example, 10% in January, and they're not spending it all. They only, the spending only went up 2.4%. So people are saving a lot of money and paying off a lot of debts, and there's a fear in the market, among in the stock market particularly, that there will be a sudden burst of inflation. The Fed will raise interest rates. And this is the thing. It's not the inflation they're afraid of. They're afraid of the Fed reacting to inflation by raising interest rates because we have this tradition in the United States. Once we hit a recession and we have a hard time and the Fed lowers interest rates and pumps money into the system, does all the right things, they have a tendency historically to raise interest rates too soon and cut off the money supply too soon and plunge us into a second leg of the recession like they did in the Great Depression. I don't think they're going to do this this time. That's what Chairman Powell has been saying over and over again. We're not going to do it this time. We're going to leave interest rates. We're going to leave interest rates low. Leave QC, which is buying bonds on the open market, open for a long time until we get full employment again. And we're a long ways from full employment. So they're they're looking at their third mandate, and their third mandate is employment. Um, they're supposed to protect the the currency and stabilize the markets and reach full employment. Now, those are very conflicting sometimes goals, but the Federal Reserve has been given those tasks by Congress. They are focused in on the full employment side right now, which means they're not going to be raising interest rates soon. We are, in this, as Chairman Powell said, I don't think he cares if we agree with him or not, but I, I've been mentioning this uh, probably for the last six or eight months, that the stimulus... And the cutoff that we've had of normal spending routines, uh, we're not going on vacations, we're not going out to eat, we're, all the things that we had, all this extra consumable money that has created damage in the economy um, and that restaurants are closing down all over and a lot of the like music venues are closing down, that, that go out in public and spend money stuff stopped. Well, what's happened to that money? It's sitting in bank accounts. People aren't spending it. They're saving it. So it's hurt part of the economy. That damage has been done. What happens when the economy starts coming back up to steam is that we have this, it's, it's almost like we put a dam on a stream, and that stream being our liquidity, our money. All right, we're saving it up. We're saving it up. And dams are important. You, I mean, when you're talking about money supply, it's the same as talking about water supply. Without a good way of regulating the floods and, and the droughts, you're going to be extra dry or extra wet. Same with money. Uh, so we've got a bunch of dams that have been built this year in people's bank accounts. The question, and this is the question that no one has an answer for, is whether those dams will release that liquidity slowly or quickly when, when we go back to life, when we go back to what we were doing pre-pandemic, when we go back to going to the movies, when we go back to going on vacations. Anecdotally, I am hearing a lot of people planning on a much larger vacation than they've ever taken before. That they feel like they've deserved it because they've been saving for it. They didn't go on vacation this year and they've been locked in their house, which is like, if, if you're vacating something, it's your house usually that you're vacating. <laughs> so they feel like it's an important thing. 
I see that happening and I hear people talking about, I'm not going to eat at home for a month. Uh, those, those kind of words, they're not, that's not everybody saying it, but those kind of words mean that the dams won't release the liquidity slowly in some cases. They're just going to break and money's going to come pouring out. There's other places where the money's going to be held back. So this, this is the period that, that Chairman Powell's talking about. This is the period that we're all looking at and going, we don't know. We've not ever seen this happen before. We've never had uh, a massive shutdown to the economy that we've been able to measure the whole time. We've had lots of shutdowns in the economies going back through the, the history of the world. People say, this is completely unprecedented. No, it's just completely unprecedented since we, we've been recording it the way we do. So we don't know if we're going to have a lot of inflation. What we do know is the tools already exist to fix it relatively quickly when it starts occurring. But it means that there's going to be some fluctuations up ahead. And that short-term spike in inflation is what caused this inversion in the break-even rate between tips and the treasury note and all that good stuff. It's all happening in the background and all this stuff. It's not reading tea leaves. It's watching people. And this is when people talk about economists and say, you know, how do you come up with these these readings out of this such uh, weird uh, numbers. Well, it's not the numbers. There are people doing these things. And if we take these numbers and say, this is a behavior, do we see this behavior in other areas? Yep, we see it over here too. Yep, we're seeing it over here too. Then we can start to say, all right, people are acting like this, which helps us make good predictions about what's gonna happen in the economy, which is why we can say, we're going to have some growth in the economy this year because that money's already starting to come free. It's already starting to, to come out. It's not pouring out or gushing out or, or surging out yet, but it's coming out at a faster rate than it was. There's a consensus among leading economic uh, predictors, e- economists who make predictions like Moody's, that we're going to see a growth in the a GDP growth in the United States somewhere between six and a half and nine and a half percent in 2021. Yeah. Now, contrast that. The it didn't make big headline news because it wasn't shocking. But the Commerce Department did come out with a GDP, the final GDP estimate for last year for 2020, and it was a negative 3.5 percent, which is what their first estimate was and the second estimate was. So they didn't make headlines, but still. They finally got the numbers together and they said it's negative 3.5% GDP growth. Well, in other words, that, the GDP shrunk 3.5% last year. Yeah. So this is this is one of our great and funny or funny to an economist anyway conversation. We don't like the word negative growth. The words negative growth don't make any sense. You can't have negative growth. We call it shrinkage. Um, it's an economic term and everybody, all the economists use it. We're, you know, we use it sometimes. We just used it. We were expecting a negative economic growth to the GDP. That's okay. We shrunk. You came back and said it. Well, it's contraction actually. Yeah. But the point is, if you look at a nine and a half percent, which is a lot of economists are saying a nine and a half percent growth in the GDP this year compared with a negative 3.5% number, see, I didn't say growth last year. That will be the biggest change in GDP since we've been recording the GDP of the United States in a single year. And I expect it will happen. And that's, that's got a lot of people scared. 
growth too fast can be can generate high prices. I think this is my personal opinion. It's also the opinion of some people who are a lot smarter than I am, like Jerome Powell. We'll handle it very well. We'll see a lot of money being spent. We'll see a lot of money being made, a short bump in inflation, and then things will settle down. And what it'll settle down to is a big question, by the way. For instance, I don't think we're going to see office buildings growing as fast as the, the number of office buildings, the square feet of office buildings in Austin or San Francisco or anywhere else growing as fast as they used to. Because I'm hearing anecdotally from various places, we, a lot of our a lot of our employees seem to be functioning better from home than they were in the office. So why should we bring them back to the office? So all the building of commercial office buildings that's potentially going to slow down. Uh, on the other hand, I think it's going to take us quite a while to accommodate residential spaces. There's going to be a lot of building going on, and house prices are going to stabilize. May, with interest rates going up slightly, the house prices may stabilize, but they're going to remain relatively high for a very simple reason. It takes a long time to build houses, and we've got a tremendous demand for houses, and people have a lot of money to put in their down payment. Yeah, uh, that that is the other piece to this, is that there's a lot of money sitting out there, which means that oh, it's for the same reason we were talking about inflation coming. There's a lot of money s- sitting out there. So housing prices are not going to stabilize immediately. They may flatten out. Um, but uh, th- as long as we have this huge amount of money sitting on the sidelines, expect to see bubbles like the cryptocurrency weirdness and the GameStop weirdness. Expect those to pop up because there's a lot of money out there. If you'd like to email us, it's jeff at tpwc.com or jake at tpwc.com. That's the personal wealth coach. And we'll be back on the other side with more of the Personal Wealth Coach. And we're back with more of the Personal Wealth Coach. This is Jake McClure, and on the line with me, I have... Jeff McClure. Well, nice radio voice, sir. It's like you've done this before. I have done this before. I got to thinking about how long I've been broadcasting on the radio, and it made me feel really old. Yeah, I've been broadcasting for 23 years now, and you? 55. Whoa. Whoa. Yes. I, I started off when I was in high school. Yeah. Disc jockey in high school. That's amazing. Uh, I've, yep. got, I've got a subject that I wanted to bring up. We talked about this before the radio program. Let me throw it out there. It's a hopefully a relatively quick one. Um, we also have a question that's just come in. Let me hit this one real quick, and then we'll get to this next question. The $15 minimum wage, and I have heard a lot of people being very concerned about this for good reason. Minimum wage is not an easy thing to apply to the whole country, just like inflation is different in different places. If you live in San Francisco, everything's more expensive. Uh, Go and get a salad. It's more expensive. Get uh, gas in your car. It's more expensive. Go to your house. Whoa, whoa, that's really more expensive. Uh, So there's localized areas where getting paid $7.50 an hour is not going to make it. You are never going to make it. No matter how many hours you work, you can't live on that. There's other places at $7.50 an hour that you can make it. Not 
easily. That's a low wage, but you can make it. The Congress of the United States, the House of Representatives, passed a bill, this this stimulus package that's being pushed by the, the Biden administration. The listeners have heard us say that we support this bill. And in the bill is a $15 an hour minimum wage. And people are going, how can you support that when, when this doesn't make any sense? This is, this is going to cause problems. Here's the thing. It was included in there. And the thought was, hey, we'll get this $15 minimum wage up there. And that will make all these big corporations have to pay much more. Problem with that is that small businesses are the vast majority of the minimum wage payers. Small businesses by far have the majority of minimum wage employees. Large businesses, not so much. And if you think about Amazon or Walmart, you've seen big headlines about there's they're the biggest employers in the country and they're raising their minimum wage that they pay people. They're they've raised it up. So this isn't a kill the big corporation thing, even though the people that are presenting it are sort of feeling that way. There's a danger there. Okay. Here's the silver lining. It's not going to happen in this bill. I know it just passed the house and the house said, yes, we've got a $15 an hour minimum wage. Um, I said this several weeks ago and I'll say it again. Now the Senate parliamentarian agreed with me. There's something called reconciliation in in Congress. Uh, it is where uh, once per bill for three bills, either a spending bill or taxing bill or some form of combination, they're only allowed to do this three times a year. In this case, they're only allowed to do it once. They're allowed to pass a budgetary or tax bill without getting a filibuster-proof majority in the Senate. It just passes with the majority vote. And it's, it was done over the years with negotiation between the Republicans and, and the uh, Democrats to prevent government shutdowns. If we're talking about the budget of the United States government, the spending bill, or a tax bill to raise money to do the spending bill, we don't want that easily shut down because it could shut down the entire institution. You can still shut it down if you don't have a majority and you don't have a plan otherwise. But so there's... This is when we've talked in the past about Congress needs to pass a budget resolution. Uh, Congress is supposed to pass this every year. This is what we're talking about. I know that's weird. They can pay for their spending however they want, but if they want to be able to pass a spending bill that doesn't get filibustered if it's disagreed with, they have to pass a budget resolution first saying, here's the guidelines that we're going to follow when we do this. And that can get uh, problematic if you don't have enough people. So we've got a budget resolution that was passed almost immediately with the new Congress. Um, the f- minimum wage doesn't fall anywhere in the category for reconciliation. It's not a spending by the government. This is a small business spending thing or a business spending thing, not a government spending. It's not a tax. So the government can't pass this, the Congress can't pass it without a a filibuster being out there. So don't expect that to be in the final bill. They're going to have an omnibus bill, which is when they take the Senate bill and the the House bill and they shove it together um, with superglue and chewing gum. Um, But parts fall out of that every time. And the parts that have to fall out, one of them, the big part that has to fall out is that $15 an hour minimum wage. We can have a longer discussion on on the pros and cons of that at another time, 
just be aware it's not a panic moment if you're against it or a celebration moment if you're for it yet. It's just Congress. All right. So we have another question. Do you, did you want to hit that or do you want to, did you have another subject before we hit it? No, let's hit it. Um, well, how can they, the question again from John, how can GDP grow that much with the ports, trucks, container shortages? It's critical short points, short points. The answer is fairly simple, John. One of the reasons we're having these choke points is, for, well, there's two reasons we're having the choke points. One, the money that's being spent in the economy, in the economy today, and again, we had retail spending go up 2.4% last month, but and it's apparently going to rise more this month. Um, all that money is being focused into some very narrow areas, buying stuff as opposed to buying services. Like if you go out to eat, that's, that's buying services. If you buy a new electronic device or a washer or dryer that's buying stuff, stuff is an economic term that we use very carefully. Um, and because, of, first off, the, the money is focused into a narrow area creating the bottlenecks. The second reason is, and it's very important to understand this, is one of the reasons we're having this big backup at the ports and we're having trouble finding people to work in the, um, in the warehouses and you're having trouble finding people to work in general is because there's a pandemic going on. And in many cases, half the workforce, the sometimes the female half, sometimes the male half, is staying home taking care of kids. And those two, once those two factors get out of the way, I think we've got plenty of room to spend a lot of money and see the GDP go up dramatically. Right. And in the middle of this, you have to remember that with the GDP shrinkage that we had last year, growth just to get back to where we were, which we know we have a lot of capacity in that area, is there. Uh, there's another headline that answers this also quite well, which is uh, Wall Street Journal, global trade roars back from the depths of the COVID-19 pandemic. We're almost back up to where we were at the beginning of the pandemic in global trade. Now, those choke points about uh, ports and trucks and Shipping containers are a symptom of this. The orders are already being made. Money is being spent. It's just taking longer for the money to get the item that you're trying to buy because of these choke points. Those choke points will get worked out. What happened with the containers is that during the pandemic, global trade shut down. So there were a lot of container ships that were full of empty containers. And usually they would just fill those containers up or offload them and get full ones wherever they are. But And they might have been in a weird place when they were sitting there. They got rid of all their shipping containers and went to a port that had trade for them to pick up, leaving all those containers. Which means that there's a bunch of empty containers sitting in Bermuda or in Venezuela or in uh, Rio de Janeiro rather than on a ship so that it can get moved back and forth. And until all those empty containers find a way back to the places where they can be filled, we don't have enough to go around. China's in the process of just making a bunch more, which means that right now the price of a shipping container is at a near all-time high, but in about a year and a half, you might be able to buy them for some peanuts. And if you're in the right place, you could buy them for peanuts now. It may be more peanuts than you have in your pocket. The other thing is there's a tremendous trade imbalance underway because China is basically out of the uh, economic impact of the pandemic because they did some draconian shutdowns. 
and barriers and roadblocks. Those are the real and, choke points. And arrests and imprisonments right. for people so, that violated them. But here in the United States, we have a lot of money to spend, and we are sitting at home, and we're ordering things from Amazon and places like that. And the result is we're buying a tremendous amount of things from 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 China and India and the, all of East Asia, and it's being shipped to the United States in these big ships, and then it gets to the docks, and once it gets to the docks, the people in the docks, many cases, COVID can really mess you up because if somebody's exposed to COVID and they go into quarantine, then the people they exposed to COVID also go into quarantine. So you have the shortage of people there to unload the ships. It's it's just, it's a, the COVID messes things up. And we can talk about COVID in what next hour some more. Yeah. China is exporting about 15, almost 16% more than it did pre-pandemic, where the U.S. is still recovering. So they've filled a void and we have to fight to get our market share back. Um, do you have anything else you want to say right before we end? No, I just, Nick, I want to talk about COVID a little bit next hour. Oh, that is not a subject that we're all going to be excited about, I think. No, but it's something we need to be aware of. Right. Um, I talk a little more about the break-even rate. I agree. Um, in the meantime, if you would like to talk to us off the air, we actually do give fiduciary personalized investment advice to people of high net worth. And you can talk to us. We've got a landline or, or uh, through the internet. You can uh, call us locally with voicemail waiting during the weekend, real live people during the week at? 254-947-1111. Uh, you can reach that same voicemail toll free at 1-800-914-7526. That's 800-914-PLAN. You can go to our webpage, thepersonalwealthcoach.com or tpwc.com. You can sign up for our newsletter. You can uh, see where our podcasts are being held or download them there. You can listen to radio programs going back lots of years. You can contact us directly through the contact form or email us directly at jeff at tpwc.com or jake at tpwc.com. Until next hour, this has been the Personal Wealth Coach. Thank you very much for listening. I know I haven't been, and we'll see you then or hear you then or something.